Mud Stories, Episode 67. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. There are so many things that get in the way of us and God. And what I found, really, it wasn't the drinking that was getting between the way I communicated um, and the way God communicated back. I mean, what was keeping that line of communication from being clearly open was the fact that I had so much unresolved pain. I questioned whether God intervened anymore. I questioned whether God was abiding. I questioned whether He healed. I got to the point where I questioned whether or not He even existed. And all of that came from the pain of not ever seeing God intervene in a healing way in my life. So what I found is that my communication with God was disrupted by the pain. There is no remedy, there's no remedy for your pain other than sitting with it, getting to know it, understanding it, identifying the source point, and then saying, I forgive. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories, a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are not alone. Hey friend, welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. I'm so glad you're here and that you've chosen to spend a part of your day with me. I'm so very thankful. And if this is your first time joining me here, Welcome. I want you to know that you are loved and there is hope today, no matter what you're facing. And so today we're talking about coming clean, coming clean with our faith and with doubt and with internal pain, that pain that is in a deep, dark place within us that sometimes we tend to suppress and ignore and deny and often leads to us covering it over with addiction. And Seth has so graciously agreed to share his insight and wisdom with us. And incidentally, his wife, Amber, has also been a guest on this podcast. And I would love for you, if you have not heard her conversation with me, I it's just one of my favorites. And um, Amber shares so transparently about her story and her journey through brokenness and shame and forgiveness. And um, it's just such an encouragement. And so if you missed that, you can find my conversation with Amber Haynes over at JackieWatkins.com forward slash episode 54. But today her husband Seth is here. He has just released his first book entitled Coming Clean, A Story of Faith. And while it is his chronicled journey through the first 90 days of sobriety, it is so much more than about recovery from alcoholism. Seth writes about the inner pain that we sometimes mask and brings hope and encouragement for all of us to face the pain that resides within us and to really receive the forgiveness and grace and healing that we already have in Christ. And so Seth is an attorney by trade. He's also a writer and an author and a blogger. He's a humanitarian and a worship leader. And most importantly, he has firsthand experienced the grace of God that he longs for you to be reacquainted and reminded of. And Seth lives with Amber, his wife, in Northwest Arkansas with their four boys and 
and he blogs about creativity and faith and marriage and culture, and I just know all he has to share is going to bless you today. I am so thankful for the time that he took to have a conversation with me, and it is my greatest hope that it would bless you today, no matter what you're facing. And so without further delay, here is my conversation with Seth Haynes. Enjoy. Hey, Seth, welcome to the show. I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, a few months ago, I had the sweet privilege of talking with your wife, Amber Haynes, and it became one of the most special conversations that I've had on this podcast. And I think it's because when you meet someone else who's been broken. There's just a sweet connection there. And since talking to her, I have been really looking forward to not only reading your words, but um, having a conversation with you. And here we are. So I'm so thankful for people like you who are willing to really look deep within not only, you know, where you've been, but where you are going and to talk openly about it. So uh, all of us can learn and grow. So yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Sure. Well, why don't we start with you introducing everybody to who you are, your family. Tell us a little bit about what you do and where you live and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, well, um, I am married to uh, Amber Haynes, who uh, maybe some of your listeners know. Also a writer, lovely, lovely individual. I could not be more blessed. And uh, we live in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, I like to call it the Ozarks sometimes, just give people some clarity. You know, we're, we're sort of mountain people uh, around here. Um, and we have four, four children. Our oldest is Isaac, and then there is Jude, and then Ian and Titus is our youngest. Um, and by day, I am a practicing attorney in, in Fayetteville uh, with a law firm in Arkansas. And um, on the side, I, I write, and, uh, you know, I love, I love putting words together. Have you always loved to write? Yeah, I tell the story a, a lot. When I was in the probably fourth or fifth grade, um, I actually started testing my pen at short stories, and they were, you know, not literary quality, to say the <laughs> least. But but I had a lot of fun doing them. And the first short story I sold was on the playground to Jenna Kohler for a quarter. <laughs> And uh, the story was about the resurrection of the dead uh, as in Scripture, except for instead of it being the resurrection of humans from the dead, it was the resurrection of frogs from the dead. <laughs> and it was just this kind of funny play on the resurrection of frogs uh, from the dead. And it was uh, humorous and theologically inane and also maybe a little gross. And Jenna, <laughs> Jenna paid me 25 cents for it, so... And you had arrived in your literary entrance to the that's, world. <laughs> that's right. That was my, that, yeah, that was the, the, those were the fireworks that set my career in motion. <laughs> and they are still popping. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's oh, true. that is so great. I know. Yeah. I have a nine-year-old. He's in fourth grade. His name is Lucas, and he is quite the cerebral child. He's very, um, he's always with a book. In fact, we were at a restaurant the other night and the waitress was trying to take our order. And he has this book that he begged me to get at Costco. And, you know, I'm just a sucker for, if you beg me to buy a book, I'm going to buy a book, you know? <laughs> so we're at Costco and he ended up being the only one who got something, you know, cause I have four also, he yeah. was the only one who got something and everybody was up in arms why he got, he got something at Costco and no one else did, but it was this book on how to survive almost anything. 
And it's one of those kind of books that has all this data in it and all these strategies, you know, quicksand, earthquakes. This morning in the car, he was on the tsunamis, you know. (laughs) And so he he has really taken to writing, too. And he's just always thinking. Anyway, the waitress was like, "Um, excuse me, what would you like? And I'm like, I'm really sorry. He just really likes to read. That's awesome. So, but it, but he, it sounds like something he would do, you know, sell some story to some uh, unsuspecting fourth grade girl who is just adores, adores him and just wants to hang out. Well, <laughs> you know? yeah, I mean, I don't think Jenna adored me as much as she pitied me. Uh, <laughs> and so, and maybe, maybe I, I took it as a sign of adoration as a kid, but I, I think now it's pity, but uh, it's still a funny story to so tell. So great. I love it. Yeah. Well, Seth, all of us face mud in life. You know this well. And, um, you know, whether that's adversity, pain, suffering, sometimes failure. And often that trajectory toward our mud begins in our young lives, but we don't really recognize it until much later. And I know that um, your youngest son, Titus, began to face some pretty serious health challenges a few years ago, which became a catalyst for some of your mud. Would you take us back to that young Seth Haynes place years ago and share with us where your mud really began and how different circumstances along the way allowed it to surface? Yeah. So when I was a child, I lived in Texas, outside of Dallas, Texas. It was back when um, there were a lot more cow pastures than there are today. Uh, it was you know, a much smaller place, a smaller community where I lived. And um, you know, from a very early age, I think I sensed very clearly the presence of God. I never questioned the presence of God. Uh, you know, questions of, of faith or who is God or, or, or what is, what does it mean that Jesus died or these things? I, mm-hmm. I just never really had um, a sense of questioning there. And I think that's a testament to my parents, the way my parents raised me. They raised me in the church. The church was always a very loving place, a kind place, um, a good place. I had no negative uh, memories of the church in my earliest days. And, you know, for me, faith was simple and it was as simple as going out and to the you know the cow pasture across the street and and playing and hearing whispers of god i mean even mm-hmm. in my earliest days i felt very connected to god i was also asthmatic and i was severe asthmatic um i was hospitalized twice with asthma uh, and it may have been you know bronchitis or pneumonia but it was it was all related to asthma yeah. respiratory problems yeah, yeah respiratory problems and so i never knew any different i didn't it didn't scare me or bother me or make me think twice i mean it i'd been asthmatic all my life now my parents on the other hand were freaked out <laughs> as, as parents are yes correct <laughs> um, and so they they began to do anything that they could, you know, to kind of see if they could uh, bring me some relief. So they took me to allergists, uh, do, you know, various kinds of doctors. I think my mom even says she took me to some sort of new age healer <laughs> at some point. <laughs> just, you know, trying anything that they could yeah. to, to make me better. And I just wasn't recovering. Well, when I was, um, you know, six or seven, we moved uh, to Arkansas, from Texas to Arkansas. You know, my, my Texas, the, the climate in Texas was a lot more arid. Mm-hmm. It was a lot drier. Um, my asthma was bad, but it wasn't nearly as bad as when we moved to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved into the woods, and there was a lot of pollen, and 
a lot of moisture, a lot of mold, and my asthma went from being, you know, extreme to extremely extreme. Um, and like, remember- are we talking epinephrine pin, like, like serious closure yeah. restriction of your lungs? Yeah, like there, there would have definitely been times where, you know, at two in the morning, mom is calling the doctor and we're loading up the car and flying across town to oh go get breathing treatments. Yeah. And, um, so scary. Ad- adrenaline shots and things like this. Yeah. Yeah. So scary. So, so again, for me, it was, it bothered me and it was painful and it hurt, but I didn't know any better. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so when we moved to Arkansas and things were getting worse, my parents had tried everything that they could. They took me to a faith healer. My dad had heard, or my mom had heard that there was sort of this faith healing, uh, you know, revival going mm-hmm. on across town and they loaded me up in the car and they took me over and I remember sitting through the service and kind of waiting for my turn and when it was kind of finally my turn or our turn to go up I did and the the man who was there performing the the faith healing service you know anointed me with oil and he said if you have enough faith you can be healed and he prayed a prayer over me you know did the whole thing mm-hmm. you know you're healed in Jesus name mm-hmm this and that. And I remember him looking at me and saying, you know, do you feel better? Do you feel like you've been healed? And, you know, I'm a little kid. I know he wants me to say yes. I right, know, right. You know, I, I didn't feel any different. Yeah. Uh, but I said, yeah, you know, sure. And <laughs> yeah. we leave the church and um, within a week I had another asthma attack. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the point. And, you know, I could have told you this five years ago, that was the point at which very young, pure, unadulterated faith um, turned against itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's when the doubts crept in. And for me, that's when I began to really wrestle with, um, yeah, the, the pains of life and the inability or the, the lack of healing um, in the life of, of some Christians, particularly in my own life. Right. Well, well and those questions of of unanswered prayer or the the answer of a no begin to bewilder you and and you it plants that seed of something just isn't right about this yeah. you know and it just grows from there festers in a sense yeah. wouldn't you say yeah 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 but but then i think as humans you know what i did and what i think most most humans do is you begin to um have this thought of okay well i have to sort this out and so the way i sorted it out particularly in my younger days of faith, was just to adopt this cessationist theology. You know, mm-hmm. God, God doesn't intervene anymore the way He did in the early days of the New Testament. You know, it was this whole idea mm-hmm. that God's spoken through His Word. He doesn't sp- speak anymore um, through healing. He doesn't speak anymore through these, you know, mysterious powers. Um, that's kind of all stopped. And that, and that was kind of the, 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 the way I reconciled it so that I didn't have to lose my faith. So would that be a growing disappointment in who God is? Because I'm, I'm thinking along the way, you know, it hits this, this um, crescendo when Titus becomes sick, or at least mm-hmm. that's the story I, I hear you saying. And yet before that, there's underlying something building. And so how do you remember sorting through some of these issues prior to some of the crisis that was to come? 
Does that make sense? Yes, and that's actually a really complicated question. I know. <laughs> in the best in the best way. Um, I think if I'm honest, and this is probably something I've never really uh, talked much about, so you get to be the first to help me talk through this. <laughs> um, I think if I'm honest, that space after lack of healing um, until probably my early days of marriage. So, you know, Mm -hmm. 15 years. I think that I relegated God to the cerebral part of Seth. You know, it was Mm -hmm. an intellectual endeavor. I didn't understand why he didn't heal. I didn't understand why he didn't come through. I didn't understand why sort of my childhood notions of God, you know, weren't proven. So I sort of relegated him to this intellectual exercise, and I struggled through those years with all sorts of doubt. You know, Mm -hmm. is God really there? Can you really hear him outside of reading scripture? Why pray? Um, Is there really any such thing as salvation? Now, I always quelled those questions uh, by just studying more, reading more, or doing all sorts of things spiritual mm-hmm. things so that I don't have to think about those questions. And, and that's, I think that's probably the most honest way to sort of answer your, your question. Well, I think you're not alone is what I'm getting yeah. at, because I think there are many people who have become disappointed in God from whatever situation they encountered, whether it was this proposal of a supernatural event that, that disappointed, or just maybe silence from God that they haven't felt interaction, you know, and there's a gamut of spectrum of the Christian church, you know, and so there's all kinds of, of um, views and um, things that are purported by different varying, I I don't know what you call them, denominations or whatnot. Um, But I don't think you're alone. And I think intellectualizing it or systemizing it is one reaction, is one way of coping, which, uh, you know, interestingly enough, becomes one of the proposed addictions that you've laid forth for us to consider, <laughs> you know? Not, co- not coincidentally. <laughs> not coincidentally, which is why I feel like it's so important to talk about, because these are, these are places that occur in the minds and hearts of people that yeah. I think we're not talking about enough. It's been said there's a refugee crisis out of the Christian church right now. Mm. Um, certain age groups of people who are just kind of done. And yeah. I think it's because there's not been made space for yeah. these things to be wrestled through in an honest way, to admit our doubts, to admit our intellectualization as a coping mechanism, yeah. you know, and... Um, And so, you know, we might not have perfectly tied up in a bow answers for these challenges, but I think to begin by actually verbalizing them and getting them out in the open and bouncing them around and living through it in community can be the beginning of, of some healing work. Yeah. You know, I agree. And, and I think that there probably would have been people uh, in my high school and college years in particular who would have had these conversations with me mm-hmm. um, if I had felt the freedom to, to, to you know, to, to process. If I yeah. had felt the freedom to say, I don't see God intervening. I don't feel the hand of God in my life. Does God still intervene? What does that look like? What is the abiding presence of God? I think there could have been some people who led me into really good answers but I was in a structure where vulnerability was not prized. 
yeah. um, and conversation wasn't prized. And that's not to say that there weren't people there who were being very vulnerable and very conversant. It's just I didn't feel uh, the freedom to go there in high school and in college. And that, that's, that's a shame. That leads to the problems I have later in life. Right. Well, let's talk about those. Because you write about how we all have pain. Pain yeah. is universal. But sometimes, many times, we don't identify it. We just manage it in, in subversive or subconscious ways. And then it's those acute situations in life that really heighten and bring to the surface the underlying pain that's been there all the time. And so what, in your experience, happened? Well, I think that's a really good way to put it. I continue to sort of intellectualize my faith. And I think as I moved on, um, I went to graduate school. As I began to kind of see the world, more of the world, you know, be introduced to more and more people, some of that sort of intellectual faith began to erode a little bit. Um, I was no longer sort of locked within the denominational walls of cessationist theology. I started to have some other friends who experienced God in some very real and tangible, even maybe mystic way, mystical ways. Um, and so some of that started to erode, but, but I still had sort of put God in the you really don't heal box anymore. And I'd kind of done it without thinking. Um, my youngest son, Titus, uh, was born, and he, he was fine, normal, healthy baby for the first six months of his life. And then about six months in, he got a growth on his neck, and it was it turned out to be, I think it turned out to be some sort of a staph infection. <laughs> but they put him on some antibiotics, and as babies do on antibiotics, you know, for the first couple weeks, he... He lost weight, and his body could never really kick that infection, and the doctors couldn't figure out why. And so he did another antibiotic round of antibiotics, and then another. And um, his his slow uh, weight loss ended up being a very significant weight loss. And then, as we moved into the summer of of that year, he began not only to just lose weight, but he began to actually throw up meals. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was vomiting his meals. He couldn't keep anything down. And the doctors got really concerned and mm-hmm. they were they were scared. So they actually sent us to Children's Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. And we went into the hospital kind of not knowing what to expect. Our, our son wasn't gaining any weight. Um, and, you know, for this, I mean, it's probably six months from the time the growth happened until the time we checked into the hospital. And the whole time I'd been praying for my son, you mm-hmm. know. So at some point there, I think it was maybe after the, about the first week, uh, the doctors come in and they, they say, you know, we, we don't really know what else to do. Um, a particular doctor came in and said, we don't really know what else to do. You know, we need to come up with some ideas pretty quickly or else we're just going to have to start making him comfortable, mm. which everybody knows what that means, That's right? It's terrible. Uh, so the minute we hear this, um, you know, you have a million thoughts yeah. as a parent. Um, but Amber and I started to go through the process of picking funeral songs and, you mm. know, well, who would be the best person to eulogize and what do you say about a baby and these things. Mm. And I remember kind of looking at her and saying, wait, this is not the way it's going to go down. And sort of charging out and telling the doctor, you better figure out something because you're not discharging us, you're not going to make him comfortable. My son's going to get better. You're going to figure it out. And when I got back to the room, 
I was so tired. I was spiritually tired. I was emotionally tired. And I was beginning to see a real lack of God's intervention in Titus's life. And Mm -hmm. so I just decided, like, I wasn't going to saddle God with the success of Titus's healing. And nor was I going to say, you know, if Titus doesn't make it, I'm not going to blame God either. Uh, Because that would be the ultimate death knell to the faith, right? Right. So instead of actually contemplating those things, um, I called my sister who lived in Little Rock and I said, I need you to bring me a bottle of gin. I need you to smuggle me in a bottle of gin. <laughs> and uh, and my, uh, my, my sister, she actually called me last week and she said, when you tell this story, can you tell people I'm a really good person? <laughs> um, and she is. She's a fantastic person. She's a saint. She had no idea that I, that I had already sort of been nursing a drinking problem, which is, we can talk about that later, but, um, but so she, she did what I asked. And I mean, that was the, that was the point at which I just said, I'm just going to drink, you know, and I don't even know that it was conscious, but that was the point looking back on it that, that I really just gave in to drinking instead of feeling. Well, it sounds like you had been, um, you know, doing some preparative work in this drinking arena. It yeah. wasn't like you just, it just occurred to you, hmm, I think it'll be gin today. Right. <laughs> you no, know? no. So I'm guessing there's a backstory there because usually yeah. there is. There yeah. is a backstory. So um, in my profession, um, you know, it's not uncommon in, in any profession, really, it's not uncommon to have cocktail hours and parties where you drink a little bit and Yep. Um, I'm a nurse. I, I go to hospital parties. So yeah, you know, say right? no more. In fact, just yesterday I was at the hospital and they had posted about there being a Christmas party coming up and there was a whole hour dedicated on the note to cocktail hour. And I right. was like, cocktail hour. Well, all right, then we got to loosen right. everybody up. Right. So you we did. can actually interact. That's right. So, yeah. You let the, we'll let the walls down. A little right, bit. right, right, right. Because we can't interact uh, without some uh, alcohol edge there. No, no. And I think sometimes the more stressful the job, the more prone we are, you know, to, yeah. to, to taking the edge off with alcohol. Well, and it's a social thing. I mean, it's it's socially uh, acceptable absolutely. in the world, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You're kind of the aberration if you don't have one, you know. Yeah. 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 It's, it's actually harder to explain to people uh, why you don't drink than just grabbing a beer every now and then, right? Right. Uh, right. But what I found um, probably in about the five or six years leading up to this, and maybe, maybe a little bit more, but in the five or six years leading up to Titus's illness, I found I have an incredible skill for alcohol. Like, I'm talented. Like stellar. I, I would say stellar. <laughs> stellar. Say okay. I'm very, I'm very talented. All um, right. I am funnier when I have had a few drinks. I am more charming. Uh, I probably write better. You know, the world is my oyster after a few drinks. <laughs> and um, yeah, so says every alcoholic ever. Right, but, right. But anyway, um, and so I'd found that I had a real skill for drinking. And, and I probably had a functional drinking problem before Titus was sick. Um, I, I've been terming it this way lately. Sometimes we stage our addictions. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is there's no significant trauma, pain, uh, catalytic moment. And maybe we're drinking a little too much or shopping a little too much or 
a little too flirtatious or, um, you know, eating a little too much or not eating a little, you know, mm-hmm. not enough, you know, right. And, and almost in moderation. And then a triggering thing happens mm-hmm. and that staging goes to full on dependence, right. dependency. And I think that's kind of where I was in the, in the months and probably years leading up to Titus's sickness. Which most of us, many of us could be even now, without even realizing we're in a staging, yeah. staging stage, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's something always to be aware of, I think is an important point. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, I'm constantly evaluating, is there something in my life that could be a staging ground for addiction? Right. Um, and I even think right now about, you know, social media and online connectivity mm-hmm. um, and those things that drag me out of my present world and into another place. You know, I think for me, that's right now, that's a very real reality in my life. Am I staging a future addiction? Right. Well, and I think it's so important to bring it up. And I'm so glad you are and that your project is bringing light to this because I think it's something that it would be really easy to just ignore. And then you're going to wake up one day with one of these triggering moments and it's going to be a little too late and a little hard, much harder to deal with at that point, you know? Absolutely. So as Titus continued to face adversity and, you know, a lack of growth and sickness, describe for us how it spun out of control. I mean, I don't want to hang a long time there because I want to get to um, the hope that you have experienced. Um, But... But in order to appreciate that, where you've come now, it's important to really see what happened then. So what happened next as Titus continued to face problems? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 is a, that, that year was really topsy-turvy for us. And, I and think how long ago are we talking about? This would have been in 2000. Well, he was admitted to the hospital in 2012. Um, was released in August of 2012. So the next year from August to probably September, there were, yeah, there was just a lot of, you know, uh, trauma. There was a lot Mm -hmm. of, you know, you got to go to this doctor. You have to go to that doctor. Well, things escalated. Yeah, things escalated. Yeah. Yeah, that's So we were released from the hospital and Titus was stable. And from that point on, um, he had a feeding tube for several months. It may have been as many as five or six. I just I can't remember. Um, but he had a feeding tube. We were going from doctor to doctor. He was doing very regular weight check-ins. So Amber and I, in some sense, were were divided a little bit. Um, we were both sort of grieving this loss of normal childhood. Um, we had three other kids to attend to. Mm-hmm. I was grieving in my way. She was grieving in her way. Um, and so in a lot of ways, we just weren't super connected. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, and, and, and we, I mean, we've had a great marriage. And so I think we were holding on the best we knew how. Yeah. Um, but as I started drinking more and more, she was just dealing with her own stuff and and probably didn't realize it or recognize it until it was a little too late. Um, so my first inkling that I had a problem was in Lent of 2013. Um, I said to myself I was going to quit drinking, see if I could do it. 
And I made it a couple of days. Well, because it had escalated to the point where you were hiding, you were misleading. Oh, yeah. You were, yeah. I mean, you know, we do, we do this with our addictions. Right. Yeah. Right. And so what it would look like for me is I, I kept all my circles separate and I even lied to myself. Right. Of I'm course. Not, and that's what act- we do. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not actually lying because, um, everyone knows I have a bottle of whiskey in my bottom right drawer. Um, you know, people know I'm going out to drinks with clients after work. And, but what was happening is I would have a drink at the desk and then I would go out to the clients at work and I would have a couple of drinks and then I would come home and I would quickly pour a drink so that Amber would think whatever she smelled was, you know, Recent, fresh. Right. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she didn't ask, you know, did you go out to happy hour or, you know, it was kind and of, you a didn't donut. tell, I didn't tell. Right. Um, and then. We would have a drink at night and she would go to the bathroom uh, while we were watching television or reading or whatever. And I would top off my drink. And so there was a lot of mm-hmm. sneaky stuff that I right. wouldn't have told you was lying. Mm-hmm. Um, Technically, it, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't exactly truth telling either. Right. Well, they, so, we call them lies of omission. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there's, a, there's a great poem about that. <laughs> Is there? As an, as an aside. I'll have nice. To, yeah. It's an Ogden Nash poem. I'll send it okay, to you. Okay, great. Awesome. Um. So towards the end of, you know, before I really had that epiphanal moment, um, Amber started asking me, you know, are, are you sure you're not over drinking? Are you sure you don't have a problem? Can you give it up? When's the last time you didn't have a drink? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, you know what I said? Yeah. Denial. I can quit any time I want. Right. Um, In a defensive tone. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> Right, which I love how that defensiveness just gives us away, right? Right, right. How many after school specials have I seen? (laughs) Like, that should have been a red flag, right? (laughs) Oh, good. But it wasn't. So, so yeah, so that's kind of what that that season looked like. Yeah. Um, It was just a whole lot of really both of us hiding from each other. So it reaches a pinnacle. Tell us about how you actually decided to get real with yourself. I know you took a trip. You had um, some key people speak truth to you, not at you, but with you. Yeah. And it led to a moment where you made a phone call to Amber. Talk, talk me through that and then what started to happen then. So I was, in a, I was at a conference in Austin, Texas, and there were there were just there was a group of of us who were staying together hanging out for the weekend and as we were you know doing what we did having conversation playing music i noticed that i was drinking significantly more than the rest of the group and in fact i was playing little games with myself like trying to remember how many drinks i had had so that you know people wouldn't think i was an alcoholic or think i had a problem um, hiding drinks, you know, making yeah. sure that I was serving everybody drinks um, to kind of keep them on pace with me so I wouldn't feel, you know, bad about it. Right. And anyway, one night um, I stayed up entirely too late uh, drinking. And the next morning um, I woke up, I went to the conference venue, and I was standing in the lobby and I was talking to somebody and I was just, I mean, really struggling. Um, Mm -hmm. my head was hurting, you know, the whole nine yards Mm -hmm. and I turned around and I saw a friend, Heather King and Heather had just moved from Minnesota to Austin and she had actually found out that 
a group of us that, that she had known were, were going to be presenting at this conference. And she walked over and said, you know, good morning or how did you sleep? And I looked at her and I said, how did you know you had a drinking problem? And it was the moment where... Wow. Not hello. Got, yeah. That's the normal thing to do. <laughs> right. Right. Why do normal? Um, but it was that moment. It was the moment mm-hmm. of clarity where I, you know, almost literally heard the voice of God say, you can either take care of this now or it's going to get really bad. And so I look at her. I say, how did you know you had a drinking problem? And she looked at me and she cocked her head and she smiled and she said, you know, don't you? And it was just this really telling moment. And um, the interesting part of that story that I don't write about is that we we kind of had to move on from that conversation because I had to go lead a breakout session. And in the breakout session, she uh, uh, messaged me and she said, I feel like maybe I was a little bit dismissive and maybe we need to talk. And it was the most honest, open um, posture of if you need to talk, like I don't want to dismiss what just happened in the mm-hmm. hall. Like let's let's have a conversation. The weight of it. Yeah, yeah. And she yeah. she really heard me and it really sat on her in that, you know, 20 minute gap. And so afterwards we met up and and she began to walk me through what it looks like to have a drinking problem. And I began to say things like, you know, I've I've never gotten a DUI. And she said, you know, that doesn't matter, right? And I said, well, I, I've never hit Amber. And she said, well, you know, that doesn't matter, right? And I said, why well, still have a job? And she said, look, that, that doesn't matter. The, the question is, are you dependent on alcohol? And uh, it was, you know, it just made perfect sense to me. Yeah. Dependent to function. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. It made your it, functioning easier because it numbed pain. Yeah, I, w- I didn't have to think about pain. Right. Right? So, and that would bear itself out. So, so she, she walks me through that uh, conversation. I go back to the house. There are three friends there that are really close uh, to me. And two of them came out and I said, hey, man, I need to, I need to tell you uh, what's going on. And I told uh, John Ray, who's one of my closest friends and now a mentor and a spiritual director and he said, are you going to call Amber or do I need to? <laughs> and he dialed the number. Nothing talked, like a sweet suggestion. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> or so ultimatum. You talk, you talk about accountability. <laughs> right. He's you stellar know? at that, yeah. Right, right. And I mean, he's 50. As he so should gotta, be, yeah. You got to cut him some slack. Right, right. right. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I made the phone call and, and Amber answered the phone and it was a very short conversation. I mean, it was... I think I need you to get rid of the alcohol. And she said, you have a drinking problem. And I remember still not wanting to really talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I said, yeah, I think I, think I might have an issue. Um, just the weight of that was crushing. Um, to speak it out loud. Yeah, just to say the truth, you know. Mm-hmm. But sh- there was not a hint of judgment. There was not... Uh, uh, any air of, of disappointment or or high-mindedness or, you know, nagging. It was just, okay, well, I'll see you when you get home. Would she say and, now that she already knew? Do you think? I think? Yeah, I think she would say yes. In fact, mm-hmm. she told me the other day, I knew, but I didn't know how bad it was until I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> 
because even, even, you know, it's embarrassing. Oh, yeah. It's, the truth is, it's easier for me to tell you the truth than it is to tell my own wife the yeah. truth. Because there were year, there was a year there that I wasted mm-hmm. with my family because I decided I wanted to drink. And that's embarrassing. Yeah. Well, there's less, you feel less risky with, with someone who you don't know as well because there's not as much to lose, right? And someone who you're very intimate with, there's a lot to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that there's also the sense that she knows that I was having a problem. And so why really unpack how bad the problem was? I mean, that was probably my early, mm-hmm. my early thought. And then as we moved on into the healing process of uh, my own healing process, she was just so gracious to just go with it and not ask and not delve into it and just say, just take my word that, yeah, it was bad enough, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a testament to her own journey of brokenness, I think. Um, yeah. You know, what a gift to be with someone who understands brokenness in the journey through healing and forgiveness and yeah. all all the places she's been. I mean, it's, I think it's God's gracious gift to you, to you, yeah. to you both, really. Absolutely. Um, I'm interested before we start to talk about what, um, what coming clean really documents, in a sense, this journey towards sobriety for you, it was alcohol. Um, but prior prior to going there, I would like to ask you a question about the book, because as you decided to admit that you had a problem and choose to change, choose this healing path, um, how did the book come about? You know, was it something that you knew before you entered into this process? Hey, I'm going to write a book through this process. Oh, like, how, no. like, how did, the, because this is a question I've been dying to ask you because, you know, in the introduction, you're like, join me on this journey, you know, uh, these first 90 days. And yet I, I'd love to know the backstory of, you know, as you're writing it in the real time, you were aware or not aware that it was a project and like, how did that work? No, I had no idea it was a project. So, um, the introduction, by the time I wrote the introduction, I was very well aware that it was moving on to publication. So, <laughs> well, let's hope uh, so. <laughs> yeah. The introduction, um, the, the word on Titus, some of the, the post log, I mean, that was all added after the fact, but right. the, core, the core portion of that journal, um, what had happened, you know, I, the, the year before I had written a novel and it, I still love it. It's one of the favorite, my favorite things I've ever done. And it's sitting on my desktop. I mean, I've done nothing with it. Right. <laughs> but I, I love this little book. Um, I say it's the great American novel, just like every other great American novel that's still sitting on somebody's desktop. <laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, and so I was really concerned that I would never be able to write again. Mm-hmm. I was concerned that this thing that had filled me up and that so much of it was fueled by whiskey and gin, yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to do it again. And I had told Heather that um, in that in that Austin uh, lobby, and she said, that's crazy. What you're going to find in sobriety is that you're going to begin to write with so much more clarity. You're going to hear the spirit. Your creative voice is going to come out more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take a lot of practice because it's going to be way different, but... Um, keep practicing that, right? So what that journal represents is a practice. I mean, it was me journaling through um, the first 90 days of my sobriety as creatively as I knew how, listening to the Spirit as best I knew how, and writing it to myself and also writing it to my children, writing it to anyone who, you know, might read it, but not with the thought that it was a project, just 
I've got to do this as creatively as possible. Also, at the same time, my therapist, as we would talk through uh, issues, would say, I'm having a really hard time understanding you because verbal communication is not your primary mode. (laughs) Written communication is your primary mode. There's nothing like being told that, right? Right. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, Uh, awesome. Yeah. You're terrible at talking. (laughs) Right. right. And that's what you do with me for an hour every week. So... um, Anyway, so so he said, go go back and 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 use your primary gifting mm-hmm. to really explain to me what's going on, so that when you come and when we sit down and talk, you'll be able to more clearly articulate what's what's going on. That's brilliant. Um, yeah. So yeah. both he and Heather had a, had a huge part to play in, you know, my journaling through this process. So then, what ends up happening is after I'm I'm finished, I had an agent at the time, and the agent says you know, what are you working on? And I said, nothing. And then he, he calls back two weeks later and he says, really, what are you working on? And I said, nothing. You're all, I'm working at feeling pain. Right, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is not an easy thing to, uh, to sell to an agent, right? Um, and then he called back the third week and he said, I know you're lying to me. Whatever you're working on, I want it on my desk in 48 hours. <laughs> so I said to him. Ninja what? agent. Yeah, he was hardcore. So... <laughs> I said I told it by that point I think I was at day like probably 68 or 70 and I said well I am working on something give me a little bit of time and I'll get it over to you and and uh that's what ended up becoming the book yeah oh just beautiful I love that well let's talk about your dive into into uh the cave so to speak um you write that addiction is a flattering lover who distracts from the pains of the day to undo the addiction, we must confess it and kill it. And um, sometimes we see the addiction, though, before we can identify the pain. And I know your therapist helped you with this. And you talk about this practice of going into the cave of your soul daily with routine and quiet. Can you explain to us what is the cave of our soul and how does going in there daily help us discover our pain and sit with it? And why do we even need to? The I want to answer the why do we even need to peace first. I think the foundation of our life with God uh, rests in the creation narrative, right? I mean, I think where we start is in the creation narrative. God created us to have communion with Him. God created us to walk with Him in the garden and to speak face to face. And throughout the course of life, man-made choices that separated that face-to-face-ness. You know, and as believers, we believe that Christ came to clear that way, to make that path back mm-hmm. to God, right? To, ha- right? to have that clear communication. Um, and yet, there are so many things, so many, whatever you want to call it, um, you can call it sin, you can call it distraction, so many things that get in the way of us and God. And what I found was... Really, it wasn't the drinking that was getting between the way I communicated um, and the way God communicated back. I mean, the breach wasn't my drinking. What was keeping that line of communication from being clearly open was the fact that I had so much unresolved pain. I questioned whether God intervened anymore. I questioned whether God was abiding. I questioned whether he healed. I got to the point where I questioned whether or not he even existed. Yeah. And all, all of that came from the pain of not ever seeing God intervene in a healing way in my life, right? So right. 
So what I found is that my communication with God was disrupted by the pain. Mm-hmm. So that takes us to the cave of the soul. Right. Well, and the alcohol was a uh, manifestation of the pain. Absolutely. But I think what I'm hearing you say is it's important not to get hung up on our behaviors and what we do, the guilt of feeling bad about what it is, and it's way more important to see what's under it. Absolutely. Because I mean, Jesus has already forgiven us for the stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and the sin is just the symptom, right? right? The, right. the symptom of the pain is the action. The pain happens and we react. How do we react? We react by one clicking on Amazon $1,000 worth. Right. We react by drinking a liter of gin. We, uh, you know, numb the pain uh, by overeating. You know, mm-hmm. those are just the outgrowths of the pain. Right. Right. It's not the, it's not the action. It's the pain. And so how do we get down and, and, and root out that pain so that we can have clear communication? Hence the cave. Yeah, hence the cave. So... My daily practice was to, to sit alone in a chair and to close my eyes and to ask God to meet me. And what I immediately felt, I mean, the first time I did it, I felt like I was in a dark, uh, you know, dank cave. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was hearing the echoes of all these voices from the past saying to me, God isn't here you know, there is no God. Um, it's, it was a very, and is a very mystical experience. And I had been going so fast and drinking so much and doing so many things to avoid that quiet and to hear what those voices were saying that I didn't even really know what my status with God was. Mm-hmm. What I found is by going into those spaces and asking and inviting God to come into those spaces... I found that those voices began to get quieter and quieter as God met me there, right? So as God comes into the cave, as God comes in and meets me in the quiet place, in the place that's reserved for us, I find that the voices in my own head, I find that the experiences of my past, that that Jesus begins to minister to those things and to bring healing. And I use the analogy of the cave, one, because it's what I felt, but two, um, when you go into the dark with someone alone, it's just the two of you. You know, I don't know if you've ever gone into a cave with someone and sort of turned off all the lights. Yeah. It, it's pitch it black. A, yeah. It's pitch black. Yeah. And it can also be a very intimate experience. You're with someone else in a completely dark, silent place. And you can have conversations there that you couldn't have anywhere else. And that's what I found. There's also a, a story I would find out uh, in the process, actually, of, of exploring what I call the cave. There's an old story about St. Anthony, and um, he would go into a, he was a desert father, and he would go into these caves to pray, and he would go into the caves to meet with Jesus. And as, as he did, sometimes it would be very sweet, and sometimes it would be very dry, But one time he went in, and as the story goes, he was tormented um, by the demons and by the voices of his past. And he was tormented to the point nearly of death or to the point of death. And he was dragged back out. And he said, no, no, I got to go back in. I got to keep praying. And as he goes back in and the demons come back and the thoughts come back to torment him, he says there was a great light and the light made all of the demons flee, made all of the thoughts flee. And, and it was the light of Christ that then came and ministered to him. 
And you can believe what you want about, you know, the, the desert fathers and the stories of the saints. But I think it's a beautiful metaphor for what happens when we consistently go into the dark places of our life and say, Jesus, meet us there. He does, and he ministers. Yeah. And practically, when you were doing this, I have a question about how you chose to walk out this 90 days. I mean, it sounds like from reading it, you were at home. Um, did you work during that time? Did you choose not to do an outpatient or an inpatient kind of program? You know, everybody um, detoxes in different ways. And yeah. um, so as a side note, I was just curious about that. For those people out there who maybe today might be deciding, hearing your voice, today's my day. Today's my day. I'm going to speak out loud. I have a problem. Yeah. I think there's really no right way to do this. I, I wish I could give the definitive answer, do inpatient, do outpatient. There's just, it's, it's too complicated. I did not go to an inpatient treatment facility. I had a therapist who was also a really good friend and he met with me once a week and I had a really strong community of faith that knew what was happening, what was going on in my life and that would call and check in and um, ask if I was doing okay. I also had a really loving and supporting wife who um, was good to give me all the space I needed at night to process yeah. after the children went down and to sit alone in prayer and to find silent places to kind of go into my cave and ask God to meet me there. So for me, I had all of the pieces of the puzzle sort of aligned to do it outpatient. There are some people that don't have that. Yeah. You know, they don't have access to therapists. They may be in a marriage that's struggling. Mm -hmm. um, they may be in a job that is complete hell. Um, and so for some of those people, they may need to go in-house. Yeah. Um, or there may be people who need to do it through a 12-step program, like an AA or an NA program. Uh, yeah. For me, I had so much support that the other, the other pieces seemed a little bit unnecessary. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. I think yeah. you're right and wise to say that it is different for each unique situation. And, yeah. you know, if you are struggling today, it's important for you to be safe and um, to have community around you. I think you are a champion of community, right, Seth? Yeah, absolutely. Community. Yeah. We can't heal alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I've written about this recently and I the more I delve into recovery, the more I just think it's true. In Ephesians 5, there's, there's that run about don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And everybody likes to quote that. But they forget what comes after that. And it's the scripture that talks about uh, speaking to each other in songs and spiritual psalms and hymns. And, um, and it's really talking about the community of faith. And, and what that passage, I think, in context is saying is, don't engage in these sins of isolation, drinking, uh, drugs, uh, you know, sex, uh, eating disorders. Don't, these, these things of isolation, um, they separate you from God. But, but instead, go into the community and be a part of this community that's going to speak spiritual healing to you and spiritual support to you. That's kind of our escape hatch as believers from those sins of isolation, you know, be in Christian community. And I found that that completely worked. Yeah, I think that is so key to be in community. And a lot of us who end up being in a place of addiction have denied community in our lives. And that's how we've landed where we've landed because we yeah. isolate ourselves. And it's important to um, 
choose vulnerability. And of course, it has to be safe people. You know, there are, you and I both know, there are well-meaning, but extremely judgmental and dangerous people. And, and so it's important um, to find those people. I'm interested in knowing more practically about the process of journaling and working through um, the issues of, you know, wrestling through God saying no to us, um, the example of Jesus and how, you know, he um, surrendered to God the Father and how that's an example of us in our healing journey and then the piece of forgiveness. I know that's a lot to unpack, but just pick whatever you want to share um, in that because I think those pieces as people walk out um, their surrender of addiction and their uh, willingness to sit in discomfort, to face anxiety, to acknowledge pain and name it and um, release it to God. These are all really good thoughts to ponder. And I'm wondering if you have anything practical to um, make as a suggestion to someone hurting today. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I've, I feel like a lot of times I do speak in metaphor. It's who I am primarily as an individual, as a writer. Um, I, I, I do tend to work in metaphor. I appreciate and enjoy and sort of it makes sense to me. But a lot of people have said, okay, well, what does the cave of the soul have to do with me practically? <laughs> uh, because it can feel scary to sit there in silence and say, okay, Jesus, be with me. And you sit yeah. there and it feels like, okay, nothing's happening. Am I nothing's crazy? Happened. Is God not showing up for me? Right. You know? And, yeah. and on that point, let me say this. If you, somebody asked me not too long ago, what does the voice of God sound like to you? And I said to them, it sounds a whole lot like scripture being read to me from my own voice. Yeah. You know, it sounds a whole lot like my voice, just the words of scripture. Um, and, and so I say that to say, if you're sitting in the silence and you begin to hear the things of scripture sort of going through your head, you can, you can be assured that's the voice of God speaking to you. Um, right. I just give that as an encouragement. But with respect to the practical piece of it, I would say, um, first of all, journaling is, is, is always a fantastic tool. I think that there is a long list of people who would say, I pray best when I'm journaling. Um, we've all known people who've kept prayer journals. We've all known people who have journaled through their process of self-discovery. And you find your pain points. You begin to find the places in your life where you need healing. Um, those things begin to kind of uncover themselves. And then you can pray over them as, as, you, as you work that out. I've never been a big journaling person. It just happened that when I began to walk from this significant trauma, that was, it was the best way for me. The journal was the best way for me. And so it was really a beautiful experience for my first real time to you know, be committed to journaling for it to kind of work out this way. And, and when I say work out this way, here's what I mean. As I got to the end of the journaling process, what I began to be reminded of, again, as scripture was being read back to me in my own voice, I began to be reminded of Jesus in the garden. I remembered him saying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. And what he was really saying is, I've got a whole bunch of pain that I'm about to have to go through, and I don't want to go through it. Mm -hmm. And God said, son, guess what? You get to go through the pain. Like, here's your chance. You're going to set an example for the rest of the church. You're going to walk through the pain of your life. You're going to walk through the pain of bearing the weight of the world's sin. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right? So all of the things that I've dealt with, all the pain in my life, all the pain in your life, all the pain in Amber's life, like, right? Jesus is walking through that. And I, I, I remember saying, okay, well, Jesus is my example, right? I guess I have to go through mm-hmm. the pain. And then I continued to hear Scripture speak um, in my own voice again. And I walked through the Passion narrative, and I see Jesus on the cross, and he's looking at the people who've just crucified him, and he says, what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And he didn't say, um, forgive them for their sins. He could have, but he didn't. He says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And I remember journaling through that and just thinking, what a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. He looked down at people who had crucified the Son of God, and he said, despite all the pain that they've caused me, forgive them. They were just doing what they were told to do. They were just sort of doing the best they knew how. They were doing the best they can. That's right. And I think we're all doing the best we can. And God's love meets us there. And it's not about what we do. It's about who Christ is. Um, And I've been reading a lot of Brene Brown lately, maybe because she has a, a new book out. And when you wrote about doing the best we can, you know, that people are just doing the best they can. It made me think of her because she writes that as well. But she also writes some on forgiveness. And um, she says that for forgiveness to happen, something has to die. If you make a choice to forgive, you have to face into the pain. You simply have to hurt. Forgiveness is so difficult because it involves death and grief. Mm. And um, when you wrote about forgiveness and coming clean... It made me think of what she said about forgiveness, because you talk about it as if it's grieving, and yet it's important work for us to do, not just one time, but in a repetitive practice again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I wanted to read this quote from your book as we close today, and then maybe you can share in closing about forgiveness. But you write on page 214, Perhaps there are many of us who need to move from a place of addiction, any old addiction, to freedom. The process hurts. There is no doubt. And I know I'm not yet done. There's more pain to explore and more accusers to forgive. It's going to hurt. There's no doubt. But if we are going to practice the forgiveness taught by Jesus, if we are going to find the freedom of reconciliation with our enemies, and in that find reconciliation with God, perhaps it's time for a serious exploration of our pains and anxieties. Perhaps it's time to leave those behind in favor of an abiding God, a God who never leaves, never forsakes. Perhaps it's time for our own coming clean. What's your greatest desire, Seth, for the for this book as it goes out, this project that is um, meeting the world, what do you most want us to know, especially as it relates to our repetitive surrender and act of forgiveness again and again? I think there's no way to live the spirit-filled life of Jesus Christ without forgiving the way that Jesus forgave. He's pretty clear in Scripture about that. He's pretty clear in Scripture that we're to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive, ad nauseum to forgive. Mm -hmm. And he's pretty clear in his great prayer 
that we'll receive forgiveness in the same way that we've forgiven others. And so I think if there's one thing that I'd, I'd love for the readers to take away is there is no remedy, there's no remedy for your pain other than sitting with it, getting to know it, understanding it, identifying the source point, and then saying, I forgive. It's really easy in a lot of ways for me. I feel really lucky because I have to forgive some faith healer in small town Arkansas that I'll never see again. I have no connection with. Um, and, then, and then maybe some folks along the way who, who bolstered some of those theologies, right? right? And some people who spoke some pretty ill things. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of ways, I have it easy, right? I, I, I haven't been abused um, I haven't experienced so many of the pains that so many people experience. But what I do know is that we can't come into the freedom of Christ. We can't come into the freedom of an abiding God without purposing to forgive the way Jesus forgave. And he experienced the worst that we had to mm-hmm. offer. Yeah. And that includes forgiving ourselves, too. Right? Yeah. And Absolutely. I love how you talk about grieving it like it's a loss and actually speaking out loud, you know, I forgive, I forgive, not yeah. only to our own selves, but to our community, yeah. to, to the context of the life in which we live on an everyday basis. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really and I still, I still wrestle with that. I mean, yesterday I was face to face with a situation where I was very, very angry at somebody. Um, somebody had said something that I thought was not well warranted and I had this fla- I have a flash fire temper and I got, <laughs> it got so angry and I was with a friend and he just kind of looked at me and he smiled and I said, Oh shoot, I wrote 55,000 words on this, didn't I? <laughs> and he laughed and he said, yep. Yep. You sure um, did. So it's still a struggle. And, yeah. and that's the thing about forgiveness is it is a daily practice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And may we show up each and every day to do the hard work that it is because yeah. it in and of itself is pain, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But Jesus promises to be with us in our pain. And that's the good news. Um, give us an update quickly before we go about Titus. How is Titus doing? It would be really hard for you to feel sorry for me with respect to Titus. Uh, I'm guessing he's running you ragged. He's running me ragged. He's still small. He still has some struggles. Uh, He hasn't developed the way uh, maybe we we would want uh, or or as big as we would want. But he's doing really well. He's he's funny. Um, He's got more energy than you could imagine. He loves his big brothers. He loves his parents. He's artistic. Um, sharp-witted. I mean, he's he's everything you'd want in your kid. So they found something that can help. Yeah, they found he has a condition known as eosinophilic esophagitis, which is a way to say his uh, immune system uh, from time to time will attack his esophagus, which mm-hmm. leads to the issues that he had. And they found that if we monitor it and when he has an outbreak, if we um, do a round of steroids and, and some other medication that it can, it can kind of right the ship. And, mm. um, so yeah, there's a, there's a way to treat it now. And so thankful to physicians who dedicate their lives to helping all of us heal. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Seth, what an honor and privilege to talk with you today. I'm so thankful for your words as I spent time with them. 
I feel like I got to know you well, and it's just been the best to get to talk to you in person. And um, I'm praying not only for you and Amber and your family, but for all of us who have pain, that we would choose to name it and sit with it and invite Jesus into it and surrender and do the work of forgiveness and uh, live a life of coming clean. So thank you for helping us do that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Where can people find you online, Seth? Uh, They can find me at sethhaines.com. Um, and I'm on Twitter at, at Seth Haynes, S-E-T-H-H-A-I-N-E-S. And they can find Coming Clean at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever um, local books are sold. Um, preferably your local Barnes & Noble. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, I hope you and Amber have an amazing week. We are cheering from here and so thankful for you, truly. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for this episode. I am so very thankful to Seth for all he shared, for all he dared to write, and for this message that he's sending out to the world. And so today, if you need the message that Seth has shared today, I would strongly encourage you to go get his book. And if you know someone who needs to hear the message that they can indeed be free from their pain, that they can surrender their addiction, that they can say today, today can be the very first day that they say, I have a problem and I want to be healed and I want to be whole. And I know that Seth desires that and so do I. And so I'm hoping this was an encouragement to you. Um, You can find all the show notes and everything mentioned in this episode over at my page, JackieWatkins.com forward slash episode 67. And if this podcast episode has blessed you, I would love it. It would mean so much to me if you would consider going over to iTunes or on your Purple Podcast app on your phone. If you would consider going over there and subscribing to this show, consider leaving a rating or review. And if you would just tell one person about the Mud Stories podcast, I know that these stories would bless so many struggling hearts that are hurting and in pain and feeling like, wow, has God left me? Does God even see me? Is God even working in my situation? And I'm here and this podcast exists for you all to know, yes, he is with you and he is working it for good. And there is nothing that God will not redeem. I hope that God meets you in your most real, secret, darkest, cave-like places of your soul, and that you will be able to experience Jesus meeting you right where you are. And so no matter what you're facing today, no matter where you've been or what lies ahead, may you find a grateful song to sing. I'm so thankful for you, and I can't wait to see you next week. Have a beautiful day. Never in you ever feels a press upon my mind A pull of shame that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a 
song 